Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of Daffy's Roundtable. Living in Canada, snake bites are not something we have to worry about too often, but in some parts of the world, snake bites can be a big problem. The World Health Organization estimates around 1.8 to 2.7 million envenomations each year. These bites end up in limb amputations, permanent disabilities, and in many cases, death. And unfortunately, most of these bites happen in Africa, Asia, Central, and South America, where in many areas, medical resources are sparse. Regardless where you are in the world, one of the best things you can do to prepare yourself for a bad situation is to actually learn about snake venom, what it does, why snakes bite you in the first place, and what to do when you do get bit. My guest today is Nathaniel Frank, owner of M-Toxins Venom Lab. Nathaniel is the perfect guest to teach us about snake bites, do's and don'ts. We're also going to learn all about venom extractions and hear his stories working with venomous animals every day. But before we do that, a huge thank you to the show sponsor Exoterra for making this episode possible. Exoterra makes quality products for our pet reptiles to make them feel at home. Okay, let's dive into this week's episode. Everybody, please help me welcome Nathaniel Frank of M-Toxin Venom Lab. Nathaniel, hello. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hello, thank you for having me. Of course, I'm very excited to do this. Um, I, I don't know too much about snake venom, but uh, you know, being in the reptile hobby and being in this industry, it's always something that's very intriguing and interesting. And you know, of course, when you're showing people um, all the reptiles, it's one of the first questions that comes up: Is this venomous? Is this poisonous? Is you know, people wanna? It's the uh, everyone's <laughs> interested in the fear factor, I guess. Is, yes. That's we put it. Um, yes. But you actually work. Um, you actually work with these um, venomous animals. And so before we dive into maybe your history a little bit, I want to ask you, um, what's it like going to work every day and having something that could, that's something that's very dangerous, let's say, um, we maybe get into how dangerous you think they are later on, but like, as, as it stands right now, something that's very dangerous and working with them every day, how does it feel to you? And are you ever really scared? Um, no, um, you, you train for it and you practice, um, so to go in and have fear is actually a bad thing. Um, you want to have a totally clear state of mind and it's incredibly fun. It is so much fun to extract venom. Awesome. Yeah. So it, it, I've seen a few videos. It definitely seems like it is. Um, I don't know if I'll personally try it, uh, without all the extensive training, but it, it definitely seems, seems like it's a lot of fun. Uh, awesome. Okay. So, so, then maybe let's let's start with how you got into this and and uh, sort of your history in the hobby. Were you a keeper, and and maybe like how did you yeah how did you get how did you become how did you open M Toxins and what's the story behind it? Well, it's it's kind of a long story, but I I started out as a keeper as a private keeper. Um, I started keeping turtles and tortoises when I was six, and awesome. um, that was my real passion. Um, that was my obsession and. I had a cousin who at the time was keeping uh, various different snakes um, and moved back to Wisconsin. And um, so at about age nine, I started caring for those. And um, it got me really, really hooked on snakes as well. And as a kid, um, I was really, really obsessed with um, the field guides and seeing the venomous snakes. And in Wisconsin, we do have two species, um, but uh, they're not in the part of the state that I live in. So 
for some reason, as a little kid, I really gravitated towards coral snakes. And um, that became like a lifelong dream was just to get to work with those. Um, so, so yeah, I've been keeping 30, 33 years now. That's, that's awesome. Wow. And, and were you keeping just like, uh, I don't want to say normal, but just like the regular, um, species that, that we all commonly keep, or were you already keeping any venomous species? No, I didn't. I didn't. I actually started, uh, mentoring, um, with, uh, venomous species, um, later on, um, in the two thousands, um, all through the, the nineties and the eighties, I was working with stuff that's now common, but wasn't at the time. Um, it's crazy to, to say that, but like, you know, all the ball pythons were pretty much wild caught and didn't eat wow. and, and were very, very defensive animals. And it was just a different time. Um, you know, it's pre-internet age keeping. So, um, so it was a lot of hitting the books and, and going to the library and studying and studying everything you could find. Um, you know, I remember when the price lists for those animals were all mailed to you as snail mail, you know? Um, so, uh, it was just a different time, but yeah, I mean, ball pythons and boa constrictors were the first snakes that I really worked with. And, um, I still, to this day, keep ball pythons and boa constrictors because they're just a childhood love of mine. You know, we use them for educational outreach at the, at the Serpentarium. Um, but yeah, my, my pet, quote unquote, pet snake that I still have is, is uh, my long-term boa constrictor that I've had with me for a long time. That's awesome. It must feel like it must be really easy to come home and handle after all day of just very careful step-by-step -step, like watching every move you make when you're handling the venomous species well it's it's so nice to have snakes that you can actually interact with in a in a i don't want to say a positive way uh, because we try to keep our venomous handlings in a positive manner as well but um it's nice to have some, to hold something that can't kill me yeah <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah 100 <laughs> And just get to, to really enjoy those animals. And, and my children um, both have ball pythons um, that they've raised basically from hatchlings. And it's just fun to, to kind of keep that going because um, it was such a big part of my childhood. That's, that's very, very cool. Okay, awesome. So, so from there, how did, how did the keeping of the boa constrictors and the ball pythons, how did that take you to M-toxins? Well, I started working and getting to know uh, some people that were keeping venomous at the time um, in Wisconsin. And um, I went out and got coral snakes and started um, following that dream of being able to, uh, to have corals. And as I was kind of learning, I learned in a very inappropriate manner. And what I mean is... <laughs> I started out, you know, typically you should take a gentle progression in learning to handle venomous reptiles of starting with something that can be treated locally that's not very toxic and you kind of work your way up. The first venomous snake that I ever handled was a nine and a half foot long black mamba. Um, wow. That's, that's how I learned. It is not the right way to learn and it's not what I teach my interns and staff. The opposite um, of baby steps. 
the opposite of baby steps. Let's start with, <laughs> and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't ego driven. It wasn't um, that I, I needed to work with one of the most toxic snakes. That's what was available for me to start learning to work with. Well, right. a coral snake is nothing like a black mamba, but in the time that I was, you know, learning to work with these, it was mambas and taipans um, were pretty much the first snakes that I was handling. And then I kind of went back. I mean, I had been working with really dangerous elapids um, for a long time before I ever handled a copperhead or a cottonmouth. Um, so it was really the wrong way to do it. Um, but I, I went with <laughs> kind of what was available at the time. Um, but I was keeping um, these corals, and a friend of mine uh, brought in uh, – he was the only one importing them at the time was the Malaysian blue coral snake. And, um, uh, if you've never seen one, it's, it's probably the most beautiful snake in the world. Um, and I decided to get those and start studying them. Well, it turned out that a very well-known venom researcher, Dr. Brian Fry was doing a study on that snake's venom and had ran out. And, um, he was asking uh, anyone that had them if they could provide venom samples for him. So I kind of early on started extracting without really any knowledge, but I eventually got to know a man who's who has a 60-plus year career as a venom extractor named uh, Jack Fasene, who was a uh, protege to Mr. Bill Haast. And... Um, he took me under his wing and, and taught me the right way to do things, not necessarily how to handle because he was all the way in Florida. I'm all the way in Northern Wisconsin. Um, but how, what to do with venom, how to process it, how to produce a good quality product. And um, along with some safety as well um, in methods um, and uh and so that kind of got the start of it. So we, we provided these samples to Dr. Fry. Um, they released the paper. Um, and then he came back and said, what else can you produce for me? So uh, I started to expand very quickly um, and have provided him um, venoms from probably 20 different genera um, across several species. That is that is very very cool. Um, before before we continue on that story, a couple of questions. So, was there any like when you first purchased those initial coral snakes? Was there any uh, laws or or did you have to get permits to be able to keep those in Minnesota? Uh, no. No. Is, is it still like that to this day, or have things changed? Things have have changed a little bit in in our state. We have um, you know our state, it's, which is actually Wisconsin. We've got um, uh, very loose and lax wild animal regulations. Okay. Um, but it's the city that determines what's legal and what isn't. So, um, from the state level, it's legal to have anything you want, tigers and bears and all venomous snakes, all these types of things. And then it's just within the confines of the city, what will they allow? So, um so no there were no permits needed or anything like that and, and it hasn't it hasn't changed 
Okay, and I assume it's the, the, it was the same thing for also to to just once you own the snake, you can um, extract venom from it. There's no, there's nothing stopping you from doing it once it's your snake, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Very interesting. Awesome. And then, okay, so and and you said that you're you're in Minnesota and um, uh, Mr. Jack Vicente, I believe his name was. Yes. Was in Florida. Yes. How did the teaching happen? Was it also online? You said it was like not in person. Like, was he sending you videos or was it like Zoom calls or? It was just a lot of emails and phone calls. Okay. And he did everything in his power to convince me not to open a Venom Lab. Um, <laughs> and uh, basically just because it's one of the hardest businesses you could possibly get into. Um, and it's very hard to find your niche and to, uh, and to, now I don't want to say be successful because I don't know how you would measure success in this business, to be honest. Um, right. So it's so non-traditional, but to actually be able to sell Venom and have a customer base. And, um, and so that was a lot of it. And then um, I took several trips um, flying down to Florida uh, to work with him as well and to work with others. Um, like for example, um, you know, there's the very well-known Miami-Dade Venom One response unit, the big anti-venom bank for the United States that was ran by a guy I got to be very good friends with and is, is he's since retired from there. But uh, Jeffrey Fobb, he taught me how to handle King Cobras. Um, and so I wanted to learn bad enough so I would fly to Florida to get lessons in in how to how to do this work how to work safely around them yeah because it seems like something that would be very touch tough to teach over the phone or or something like that that's that's super interesting um so did you did you learn all that as m toxins was already opening and established or was this all before you opened the venom up it was all as we were opening um we uh we were providing venoms from certain types of snakes um to Dr. Fry, and as the scientific papers kept coming out, uh, more scientists were coming to us for more of the venoms. And part of the reason for that was a lot of the things that Dr. Fry needed uh, were from rare snakes, so uh, stuff not commonly kept. And um, you know, it wasn't like they were calling for Gaboon Viper venom. You know, right, uh, yeah. <laughs> they were calling for, you know, rare mountain pit vipers like Ovophis uh, genus, uh, stiletto snake venom, um, things of that nature, where um, we were the only lab producing it. Um, so it's part of the reason that we've had um, some success is, uh, you know, producing those rare venoms that have never really been studied very, very closely. Awesome. And are those same venoms ever used to create antivenom? Are they still too early and maybe still in the research stages? Um, some of the, the rare venoms um, are, uh, they're pretty much just being done for private scientific research and evolutionary, you know, the evolution of snake venom is, is one of the biggest topics that um, a lot of our customer base work on. Um, but as we grew, that's when we started to get anti-venom contracts. Um, and so we do a lot of Gaboon Vipers and Rhino Vipers and Black Mambas and all that stuff for the African contract, for example. Um, 
and uh, a lot of the common species and gene, uh, genera for Asia, India, you know, that whole thing. Um, so we do a lot of the common stuff for the anti-venom stuff, but the, the rare snakes are still kind of the private research field. That's awesome. Okay. Um, do you, are you, you're, you're not creating the anti-venom yourself. You're extracting the venom and are you sending, are you sending it to a lab in the United States to, to be making an anti-venom and they're sending it as an anti-venom overseas or are you just sending the venom as is over there? So there's no venom lab in the world that produces their own anti-venom. Um, it's all done by the pharmaceutical companies. Okay. So what, uh, what that process looks like is you have uh, the venom extractors are purifying, collecting, purifying, and shipping out the venom. And then you have uh, the pharmaceutical companies taking that product and using it to microdose at their own animal farms. So typically uh, it's horses that are used. Um, wow. In some cases it's sheep, but they're microdosed a sublethal dose of that venom, which triggers an immune response in them. They build up what are called IgG antibodies. Um, and on a regular basis, those animals give a blood plasma uh, donation. It's purified and turned into antivenom. So that's kind of the easiest way to explain how it's made. Um, but uh, there's actually a, a heck of a lot of science behind it. Um, what they do to the actual immunoglobulin and everything like that is, is very, very specific and proprietary to each antivenom manufacturer. But um, to answer your question, we do antivenoms all for international. So uh, our antivenom producers are custom pharmaceutical companies in India, in Mexico, etc. So that so the 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 actual antivenom is basically an antibody of an another animal. It's not actually anything that's created from the snake itself. That's uh, that's correct. That so is, I those, had no idea. Those antibodies are. Uh, trained, if you will, is kind of a, a loose way to explain it, um, to identify and attack those specific types of snake toxins. So it's it's really very interesting. When you're holding a vial of antivenom, you're literally holding blood plasma, you know, is, is what it is in its simplest explanation. That's, yeah, very, very cool. Awesome. And then, okay, so when you're sending... When you're sending the, uh, when you're shipping the, the venom overseas, is there any precautions that you have to take for it to like, I, I don't know if, if this even makes sense, this question, but like, does venom have an expiry date? <laughs> uh, it does actually. It does, um, okay. Um, what we do is we turn the venom into a powder um, and we do that using a machine called a lyophilizer, which is a, a fancy laboratory food dehydrator is a good way to think of it. Okay. Um, we, we take those liquid venoms, we freeze them, and then we remove all the moisture. And that makes them shelf stable. Um, and as long as they're kept out of uh, sunlight, uh, super warm temperatures, that venom lasts for several decades wow. um, on the shelf. So, um, so that's kind of how it's sent out and, and, how the customer receives it very cool and is there a specific species that you uh maybe have to more commonly extract from because there's a higher demand of anti-venom for it or 
um is is it just uh, like completely random well once those animals are immunized um they're getting what are called booster shots so um they're getting like updated doses uh to keep their antibodies uh, being made against those species so it really depends on the schedule of the immunizing that um the pharmaceutical companies are doing so it varies sometimes they need more black mob of venom sometimes they need more sawscale viper venom it, it just depends um right yeah it just depends on what that particular company is doing at that time and and i guess the the snake that's most commonly or i guess what the the yeah, no, I don't know if my question even makes sense. Like, probably how often the snake is uh, envenomating people in that area would probably be more likely to have venom from or want venom from that snake. Well, that's partially true. There's there's two types of anti venom that exist. There's one that's called a monovalent, which treats against one species. So, um, for example, anti venoms that are monovalents would be like king cobra um uh monocle cobra things like that um but what's used in the field um to treat because oftentimes people don't know what they were bitten by right and so there's a type of anti-venom that's the most popular that's called a polyvalent and that's done by region so all of the venomous snakes that are in a region um they produce an anti-venom for that and it's only one drug and it treats all of those different snake bites so um for example in africa there's two um there's uh what's called pan-african anti-venom which covers all of the species and genera that are there and then there's mena uh, middle east and north africa uh, that covers all the species there so if a person is working in a field um, they're barefoot or in sandals and they step on a snake and are bitten and the snake slithers away which is typically what happens um they don't know what got them so uh the one drug is a cure-all uh for anything venomous in the area awesome that's actually one of the questions i had for you was can you use one um anti-venom to treat multiple different snake bites so okay that's uh that's very cool is there any species that requires venom from its like from it specifically itself to to be an anti-venom to, to create an anti-venom or do the poly, uh, sorry, what's the word you used? Polyvalent. Yeah, do the polyvalent venoms, uh, does that work for every species? It'll work for every species that's considered of concern. So um, there, and, and there's also these other factors, uh, like uh, we call it cross-efficacy. So, you know, there's a lot of situations where a snake's specific snake's venom may not be in the mixture for the polyvalent, but it can still treat it um, uh, and treat it fairly well. So um, there are situations like that. But um, there's when you break down the toxicity of snakes, you, there are some snakes that evolved to have more toxic venom geographically than others. And so um, in those situations, we have to use locality-specific snakes to help make the antivenoms. Um, but the majority of snakes uh, that are for Africa and the Middle East and whatnot, 
um, locality is not of concern. Cool. Very, very, very cool. Um, that's that's awesome. Okay. Um, so so we've we've kind of already broken down what you guys do at M Talks and Labs, and we've spoken about it a little bit, but maybe like a a quick brief explanation other than extracting venom what else do you guys do at m toxins so a big part of uh when we expanded uh we needed more production space and one thing i always wanted was to open the type of zoo that i would want to go to as a kid as a reptile lover and so um so what we did um my business partner and i we turned um the other half of our facility into an educational center so what people can do is they can come in they can watch us extract venom and be taught about the different types of venoms and things but also do fun things like pet tortoises and see our bald eagle and our owls and all the other venomous snakes we put on display and you know we do a lot of outreach um for school groups and cub scout and boy scout uh Boy Scout and Girl Scout troops and things like that to just get people engaged in science and hopefully conservation because whether it's venomous or not, so many of these animals need to be protected um, and need to be respected. And so that's a big mission that we have. Yeah, that's awesome. And then did you have to get like specific cages to be able to display the venomous species um, in the Serpentarium? Um, we got uh, all of our cages from Zilla, um, which is, Zilla is a Wisconsin-based company, um, and they uh, provided all of our caging, um, all of our safe, secure caging for our Serpentarium. And um, and then it's, you know, we take in a lot of rescue animals. Our, our tortoises are almost all rescues and et cetera, et cetera. So we just have um, you know, rescue snakes, all sorts of things that we use as part of our educational program. So it works out great for us because we're extracting the venom behind the glass, but we need to be doing that anyway. So we're getting our work done and people are getting educated and entertained while it's happening. Same time. I, how, how, how often are you, um, extracting venom? Is this, is that like a, a daily thing? It is a daily thing. Um, so we extract seven days a week at our lab. Um, and uh, when it's open to the public, we do it on the hour. Um, but uh, on the days that we're not open to the public, we're doing uh, several other species and all sorts of different stuff, feedings and things of that nature. Cool. And then are the snakes that you have, um, that, are, that you kind of just have in the back for, uh, for extracting, are they also the same ones that are on display? Um, no. Well, to a point, we tried to uh, put out uh, a good selection of rare reptiles um, that we put out there, um, some of which are very understudied from a venom perspective. Um, and so it, it depends. Usually, you know, the snakes that are on display are typically retired. Um, so they're no longer being used for venom extraction. We just have more of the same genus and species in the back um, that we're extracting to hit our quotas. Right. And and 
do you have to set them sort of sterile or do you set them up in more of a natural um natural way i i don't know if it would be easier to work with them with less things in the way or if that even makes sense well as far as in the laboratory they're kept every snake is kept on paper towel um right. and uh we use uh rack systems specifically um you know venomous snakes are very secretive and uh well hall snakes are very secretive but yeah. venomous ones sometimes more so and um and the stress of venom extraction can really take its toll on these animals. So um, we find the rack systems to be the most ethical way to house them. But that doesn't go for the ones in the Serpentarium, right? That would nope, be... the ones in the Serpentarium are in bioactive exhibits. Oh, oh, very cool. Are there any other uses besides creating anti-venom and uh, research for extracting the venom? Well, there's uh, there's several drugs, you know, that have been derived from from venom. Um, we do a couple um, of new experimental drugs that are coming out, but we're not um, unfortunately allowed to talk about them. Um, but there's, uh, you know, there's such a litany of, you know, br early breast cancer detection drugs and um, uh, high blood pressure, low blood pressure. Uh, medications, diabetes medications, um, you know, that are derived from venom, um, even some blood tests um, that are done, you know, uh, coagulation, uh, coagulopathy tests, things of that nature um, that are practical uses of, of snake venom. That's very interesting. I, I was always wondering if there was, if, if, if solutions to some medical problems were in venom and they're just in species that haven't really been touched before. But um... well, the thing the thing that's interesting is as as the scientific analytical equipment gets better, scientists are re reinvestigating these venoms um, all over again because as the equipment becomes more uh, sensitive, able to detect more properties. You know, all these venoms are constantly being looked at over and over again because there's so much opportunity um, to identify different um, properties that can help mankind. So it's kind of a it's a never ending thing. It You know, it's not like, OK, we looked at the eastern diamondback rattlesnake venom and we know everything we need to know about it. Now we can move on to another type of snake. It's every couple of years scientists are wanting to go back and look at these again and they're finding more and more and more interesting things every time they look into it right and and they're not classified in groups based on their venom right so like um different cobras could potentially have different venom or absolutely are... okay yeah. absolutely so some cobras for example are more neurotoxic um so attacking the uh uh attacking the brain, brain functions. Um, others are more cytotoxic, which means it's going to digest. It has more digestive enzymes. It's going to rot the flesh. Um, there's no snake venom is just really one thing and one thing only. Um, what drips from those fangs is, is a very complex mixture um, that has so many different properties. So what we do is we try to teach um in our facility 
if you're looking at the identification information about a snake that's on display, we list as many of the the proteins um, as we can or effects as we can, the type of venom, um, but it's never typically just one. You know, um, like a, a black mamba, for example, um, you know, we list that it can cause tissue death. Typically in a patient that's bitten by a mamba that's not treated, you don't see the tissue death because the neurotoxicity has shut down your diaphragm and you're dead. Um, because you can't breathe anymore before the tissue can die. Yeah. So it's, it's really very, and, and to anyone interested in that, there's a wonderful documentary that was made by a very good friend of mine, Ray Morgan called the venom interviews. And if you search that on YouTube, uh, there's a video called it's complicated and it's about four minutes long, but it really explains the complexity of the venom, uh, coming out of those fangs that's very cool i'll have i definitely be watching that video and i'll have the uh the link to it in the show notes if anybody wants to go check that out um so so, so on on that um on that is it true that different people will also react differently to different venoms that is 100 percent true and that's because uh every person's body is different um we know like, for example, in a certain snake bite that will stick with black mambas, um, as an example, we know that they're going to cause neurotoxic effects uh, in every patient. But what you don't know is, does that patient have weak kidneys? Does that patient have uh, other types of health concerns where that venom could exacerbate that so we see that treating snake bite quite a bit um you know some people you know go into shock other people just have their diaphragm shut down it's very very it's varied one of the top snake bite uh scientists doctors in the world um once put it as you're a living science experiment because (laughs) you don't know how much venom you got um from an envenomation typically um, and you don't know how your body's going to react. So you treat with antivenom and you, you treat the other symptoms. Yeah. Um, as they come up. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, and then is it, I, I've heard it's the same thing for, um, and I don't know, actually, that might be a good question. Do you work with any rear fang species and is it the same thing for rear fang species? We do work with a lot of rear fang species, and it's surprising how incredibly toxic so many of them are, but they have such an underdeveloped delivery system for their venom that uh, they, they can't really hurt you unless they're biting and chewing and chewing and chewing. Um, but I've seen bites from simple species um, Boega snakes in the genus Boega that mm-hmm. have swelled people's arms to what looks like twice their size and they're vomiting and they're diarrheal and they're incredibly sick, you know, just from a very small dose, um, from a snake that's treated as non-toxic. Um, I, I know it's a, a fine line to walk because, you know, so many of the rear fang species are considered not medically significant. But as we look at their venom, it is very significant. It just can't get into you, if that makes sense. Um, 
so it, in the rear fang species, you know, we really try to be cautious how we classify that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, uh, I've seen similar, like we, um, hog noses recently got banned here. Uh, but before they were, I knew a lot of people who were keeping them and a lot of people who had been bit and had absolutely no reaction. Uh, but then the one time that somebody did get a serious bite, or I guess now you're saying it was not a serious bite, but that it was maybe, maybe basically chewing on, on his hand or something. Uh, but it was a pretty significant swelling as well. And so I wonder, I was wondering the same thing. Yeah, it's just like like any toxin entering your body. It Some people it can... We have, you know, a snake in the States, you know, the copperhead. Some people lose their fingers from that snake and other people take a Benadryl and never have to go to the hospital. It just, there's so much variation in it and you don't know how you're going to react. Personally, I think it's foolish that rear fang species be banned anywhere um, just because um, you have to really be working to get injured by one. But um, but they at the same time they do have some of them have very potent venom. So if you understand, it's it's a difficult thing. You don't want to classify these as dangerous animals, but they are kind of dangerous. There's a, a great book that I recommend to people that love rear fang snakes and want to know more about their venom, and it's it's by a, a man named Dan Keeler, and it's called Venomous Bites from Non Venomous Snakes. Um, and it's it's one of the most comprehensive books about serious envenomation from rear fang snakes and and basically talks about that venom evolution quite a bit. It's a it's a wonderful read. It's not too scientific. Um, it's not written. It's written in a way that anybody can enjoy that book and learn something about rear fang snake venom. That's very cool. I will, Yeah, I'll be looking for that book as well then. Um... It's, it's always interesting, even if you're not keeping the species, right? It's always interesting to learn, especially when you're in the hobby. Uh, just just the general information. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Awesome. Okay, so we spoke about snakes quite a bit. Um, but I've, you know, I've seen on your website that you are also extracting from other species. Um, so what other species besides uh, snakes are you extracting, extracting from? So we extract from tarantulas. Um, we do true spiders. And we do uh, scorpions. And our scorpion work is about 90% based just on antivenom. Um, our tarantula work and true spider work is all done for research. So we also do uh, centipedes as well, I should say. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, people looking into those. And one thing that, that keepers have said to to me uh, when they visited is why the heck would you look at tarantula venom? Tarantulas aren't deadly. The deadliness of a venom means nothing. Um, what what could lie within that, that venom um, could have a huge impact on mankind. So we look at it like all venom is important and all venom needs to be studied. So even though your Mexican red knee isn't going to bite you and kill you, um, there could be properties in that venom that could be the next wonder drug um, that could help a disease for the human race. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and are you, sorry, I don't know if the biotasis, but is there currently any papers that will be coming out on 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 anything of the of the sort? 
what we can say is that there are several papers coming out on centipede venom evolution and toxicity, as well as uh, old world and new world tarantula species. Very, very cool. Uh, is it is it harder to uh, extract venom from from like uh, smaller? Like I, I don't say. I guess there's, you probably are extracting venom from probably pretty small snakes, but. Um, from like smaller animals like the tarantulas and the scorpions and all that? Um, it's, it's, it's different. It sets a different set of challenges. Um, you have to have an incredible amount of patience because, excuse me, you're, um, typically we use a, a small electrical stimulation um, on the scorpions and the tarantulas to get them to release their venom. Um, so placement of the probes is very important. But these are also incredibly fragile animals um, that need a lot of respect um, because of, of that fact. So uh, with tarantulas and centipedes, we actually uh, uh, anesthetize them with CO2. So we actually knock them out and, um, and that way we can handle them very gently. Um, they're not awake. They can't fight it and get injured. Um, and we usually have about 30 to 40 seconds. So we knock the spider out or, or uh, spider or centipede. We quick get the venom sample. We put them back in their enclosure with a meal. They wake up and they're usually so angry they eat right away. So <laughs> And all that happens in like 30 to 40 seconds? Yes. Wow. Wow. And you're not doing the same thing with the snakes, right? They're, they're completely nope. awake when you're okay. completely awake. Okay. That's very interesting. I, yeah. And, and also I, I guess another thing is what about quantities? I assume you're getting probably a lot more from uh, extracting snakes than you are when you're extracting from tarantulas or, or smaller animals. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, to put it in perspective, we get a lot of uh, phone calls and emails from people that want to extract scorpion venom because they believe it will make them rich. Um, <laughs> on, on a side note, if you figure out how to get rich extracting scorpion venom, please send me an email and let me know how. <laughs> um, but typically, uh, you only get one or two drops from a scorpion. And to put it in perspective, uh, to make a gram of usable venom from a scorpion is typically 15,000 to 20,000 drops. So when you put it, put it that way, it's a lot of labor. Yeah. And you're getting like one, two drops from, from every scorpion, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so why do people think it'll make you rich? Is scorpion venom very expensive? It is very expensive. And there's, there were several news articles that came out about certain scorpion venoms being the most expensive liquid in the world. And that's true. Um, but who's going to buy it from you? That's the question. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you could sit in your room with, with, you know, 10,000 scorpions and extract from them and have all this wonderful, expensive, uh, eventual powder. Um, but, uh, who's going to buy it and who's going to pay that much? That's the, that's the question. Um, and that's the hardest thing about the venom industry is, you know, can, can just about anybody figure out how to extract a snake's venom? Yes, debatably safely. But what you do with that venom once it's done and it needs to be purified and it needs to be freeze dried and all of those things, those are trade secrets that 
no one's going to share with anyone um, because that's how we ensure the quality of our products. Um, and that's what sets the Venom Labs apart. Um, you know, we believe our process has us producing the highest quality venom there is. Um, and it took over a decade to get that good at it. So, um, so yeah, any, anybody could quote unquote extract venom, but what you do with that venom and how you handle it and how long it's at room temperature and how you're measuring bacterial growth and all of those types of things are, uh, make it a very complex industry to work in. Right. And, and yeah, and like you said, you, you don't want to be sharing all your secrets and having just any private keeper be able to take over what you're doing. We get at least an email a week of people that want to start Venom Labs, and they typically ask us to help them either in learning how to handle venomous snakes or to tell them how to process venom and, and how to produce a high-quality venom. Um, and we're not going to do that. <laughs> Right. Um, that's that's just foolish that's uh it's dangerous it's, as well it's dangerous as well but yeah. um yeah there's a lot of people that want to open venom labs but really if people want to study venom or if people want to work with venom the smartest thing you can do is go into toxinology and toxicology it's really the you know or you know go into uh you know, just general venom science and, and get with a pharmaceutical company, get with, you know, some of these research institutions, the research that's happening at various colleges throughout the North, throughout North America, you'll have a way bigger impact. There's a reason there's only nine venom labs, you know, in the world. In the world. Um, yeah. Wow. Now there's several that call themselves Venom Labs, but have no customer yeah. base right. or anything like that. Um, but if you go by those of us that actually produce for anti-venom and regularly produce high volumes of venom, there's only nine of us. And, and are you like with the nine of you together, are you guys producing enough venom to like supply the demand, I guess? <laughs> More than enough. Oh, wow. Okay. More than enough. There's... You know, there's articles that come out that talk about the the shortage of antivenom, um, and the shortage is because countries can't afford it. Um, mm -hmm. They have trouble getting it to their uh, to their people uh, in the ranges where people are bitten. Um, that's where there's shortages. There's no shortage of getting venom to a pharmaceutical company to be able to continue and sustain and make their product. Right. So uh, it's often it's often misunderstood. Yeah, that's I actually I've had heard the uh, the fact that there was a, a snake, uh, an anti venom uh, shortage in the world, and there was a problem in certain countries. So that's that's interesting that uh, that that's actually how, what's going on. Yeah, there's usually more to the story than you know just what the, the media is showing you. And absolutely, what the media is showing you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So are there any other species other than tarantulas or scorpions other than snakes that you're working with? Yeah, we do. Uh, <laughs> we do some amphibian work. Um, awesome. It's it's pretty rare and there's not a lot of demand. Um, we get a lot of people trying to get us to sell them uh, psychedelic toad venom so they can get <laughs> high. Uh, That's funny. <laughs> um, and uh, but we do that and we do 
you know, lizards as well. Um, we can't say we we can talk about our beaded lizard and Gila monster work, but there's other lizards that we're working with uh, that we've extracted from for other studies to kind of redefine those lizards' saliva. Is it venom or 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 not? Um, and that is uh, very cool. Yeah, that's something that we're that we're working on. It's think, it's been long term projects. I think I know what species you're you're hinting at. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a few. There's a few varieties okay. that that okay. are being looked at. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Uh, what what oh, are for the uh, beaded lizard and the Gila monster? Are you is it for anti venom purposes or also just for research? Nope, it's just for research and. Um, we don't uh, sell a large amount of it. Um, there are drugs that are derived from those venoms that are um, I spoke about earlier um, that are used, but um, but no, we uh, it's just we have it on the shelf if a researcher needs it. Is okay. one of those things. Very cool. Is it hard to extract from uh, from beaded lizards or from it's, toads? Because it's not uh, orally, right? Well, it is with oh, is. lizards and healers. Yeah. What we do is we take uh, a hollow tube and we have them bite on it. And as they're biting, they're expressing the venom out of their glands. And um, as that's expressing, uh, you know, it, instead of moving up the, up the groove of the teeth in the bottom jaw, it's going down the tube and dripping into the collection vessel. So, um, so it's not too bad there. And with toads, uh, you know, we're typically expressing the gland um, into a vessel and then purifying it and going from there. Very, very cool. Um, do all do all toads have venom? No. Yes. All toads have venom? Mm-hmm. Though they have a poison, yes. Oh, yeah, I guess, yes. It wouldn't be a venom, it would be a poison, right? Yeah. I'm I'm really against that, by the way. I'm I I think it's perfectly acceptable to say poison for all of it, because because you know, venom is a poison. Yes, and they're all toxins. And one of the things you know, people get so hung up on that. You know, the the reptile community, and it's like English is the only language that differentiates between a venom and a poison. Every other language, it's poison. So, you know, I don't, I, I just kind of, I don't interact with people on social media about it, but I do laugh quite a bit when I see all of Somebody the correcting and, oh, yes. yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I have been guilty of it myself. This is, it's good to know. This is good to know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is it true? It's actually Dr. Fry that really pushed that difference and differentiating it. And he started that in the nineties. Um, and he's right, you know, but at the same time, like I said, they're both toxins. They both don't belong in the body. Yeah. <laughs> and they can, they can both, uh, they can both inflict, you know, medically significant uh, things in us. So, you know, is it, is, are the memes true? Yes. But should we, as a group, uh, of reptile enthusiasts, should we be so hung up on it? No, not at all. Okay, no, that, that definitely makes sense. Awesome. Um, what about the Masaga rattlesnake? Because that is the only um, venomous species we have up here in Canada. Do you ever work with them? Um, 
And we, there, we yeah. don't, um, okay. we don't, um, mostly because there's no demand to look at that venom right now. Right. Um, and in Wisconsin, where we're at, we have the Western or the, sorry, the Eastern Massasauga as a native rattlesnake as well. But, right. um, the last thing we would want to do is take any out of the wild for studies that don't exist at the time. So that would be one of the rare situations where if there were scientists that wanted to study that venom, we would get permits from the state and then go in the field and actually extract in the field um, to get those samples. Just so we wouldn't have to put take an animal out of the wild since here they're protected. I believe they are in Canada. Too. They are protected here as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And is it, but if, if someone was to say get, that the antivenom already exists through like the poly, um, the polyvalent antivenom. Poly yes. okay. That's one of those situations that we say cross efficacy that I brought up earlier. So right. it, the antivenom doesn't have Massasauga rattlesnake venom in it, but it doesn't need to, it can still be neutralized with the mixture that exists. So, um, so yeah, that's how that would be treated. That, you know, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so I already know the answer to this, but I don't know if I'm, if, if you want to talk about it or not, but I'm just going to ask the question. We'll see where it goes. Sure. Um, have you ever been envenomated yourself? Yes. Yes. I have. It's a How horrible, horrible experience. <laughs> yeah. Horrible yeah. experience. And it's happened three times in my career. Wow. Um, okay. And um, that's out of hundreds of thousands of, venom extractions uh, I was gonna say handlings. yeah three times is, is like nothing yeah but um they were all my fault and any good venom extractor will tell you it's never the snake's fault um right. it's it's something you did wrong you failed um and that's true with any snake bite it you know uh, with the exception of if you're hiking and you step on one or or something like that um okay you know, it's typically human intervention that leads to a bite. And, um, and mine were, my black mamba bite was the most recent um, in wow. 2020. And um, it was 100% my fault. The snake was not even trying to envenomate me. Um, I used two hands to extract from them. And uh, it's because of their physiology and the way that they bite. I had my right hand uh, index finger on top of the snake's nose while I'm holding the snake's head uh, and neck with my left hand. And I had extracted its venom uh, naturally. That's something we do. We don't express the venom glands, squeeze anything. We let them give what they're going to give. So they always still have venom in them. Um, but what happened was instead of lifting my right hand first, I lifted my left hand first and twisted the snake's head and cut my index finger open with its fang. Oh, wow. Um, and so even though I had just extracted from that snake, it still had venom all over its fangs. Um, it still had venom in its glands and it wasn't even, wasn't even trying to hurt me. Um, it was completely human error. Yeah. It wasn't a bite. It was more like a prick. Exactly. Okay. And, and so, so... there's been, um, uh, the worst, uh, was from a stiletto snake. Um, that was my first bite in uh, 2000. Oh, what year was it? I'm trying to remember. Uh, 2018. Okay. And that was that was the worst bite. 
it's actually kind of a funny story. Two funny things happened during that snake bite. Um, number one, uh, we were extracting the venom from stiletto snakes as part of a study to prove that there's no anti-venom that can treat them. So, <laughs> so I knew that so there wasn't already an anti-venom. There was no anti-venom at the time. And, um, and so the other funny thing was, uh, I help consult with Snakebite, and when our protocol, we we contact uh, the state's poison control center and let them know that there's been an envenomation and all kinds of details. Um, my phone was ringing in my pocket in the hospital because they were trying to call me to consult on the bite that I had just had. <laughs> That you had. <laughs> they didn't know that it was you. They didn't know it was me at first. So, um, so something. Those were two situations that were funny. What wasn't funny was two days in the hospital, um, wow. and uh, it was uh, mind-numbingly. Oh, it was excruciating pain. I was pretty confident that I was going to lose my finger where I was bitten. Um, luckily, I walked away without any damage. Um, wow. but that was pure luck. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's crazy. And, and th since then, have they found an anti-venom for it? Uh, one manufacturer that we work with, uh, now has it listed as, uh, a species that can be treated with anti-venom. Yes. And how were you treated without the anti-venom at the time? Uh, what they had to do was, um, go into my carotid artery and put a line direct to my heart and they were pumping uh, a product called Dilaudid uh, directly in, into my heart. Yeah. And um, it was excruciating. It was like having every bone in your body broken at once. Wow. And you felt like this for the entire two days you were in the hospital? Yes. Wow. And, and once you left the hospital, how long before you were like back on your feet and ready to get back in the lab? I went back into the lab the next day. Wow. Wow. That is awesome. Same thing with the black mamba envenomation. You know, um, that's the only time I've had to receive anti-venom. And I received the anti-venom and um, I was able to go home and be... Uh, back with my family just a few hours after receiving the anti-venom. Wow. Um, so it was right back to work again the next day with that too. That, that is crazy. You know, when sometimes people um, like have a car crash or something and then they, they can't drive for an extended period of time just because they, they don't want to relive that. You, know, you were right back to work. That is, that is incredible. Uh, are you able to, are you able to uh, administer the anti-venom to yourself or do you have to have a doctor on call or do you always have to go to the hospital? Well, the anti the anti venom that we help produce for Africa, for example, that can be administered um, uh, by yourself. However, our hospital is only about ten minutes down the road, okay. so um, so we grab the antidote and take it, you know, on the trip with me to the hospital, and we actually had it administered there. Okay. And is there any, like, do you administer to the site of the bite or? Uh, nope. You just, you, you typically reconstitute it and hang it in an IV bag. Oh, okay. And so it's just like a normal IV. Okay. Very, very interesting. 
Awesome. Okay. Let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. As somebody who's been working with uh, venomous snakes um, for a long time and somebody who, um, you know, the, there's like a protocol to working with them and, and to being safe working with them. First of all, do you think they should be in private collections? And second of all, the the way that they're currently viewed in the hobby, do you think we're viewing venomous keeping correctly or do you think there's a better way to do it? I think that um I think that they're I think that everyone should have the right to have these animals as long as they are doing so safely um and in as prepared a manner as possible. Um there are a lot of venomous keepers uh, who do things right and um, take the necessary steps to know how to treat if they make a mistake uh, or have an accident, I should say, um, and things of that nature. Unfortunately, the thing that the general public likes is um, sensationalism and things yeah. that are sensationalized. Um, Right. Working with these animals should be boring. It should be boring. Um, doesn't mean it can't be exciting, you know, if you're, you know, breeding species and things like that. And um, But handling venomous snakes, working with venomous snakes should be a very calm, boring process. Because if you're following what you need to do um, just to be safe in general... It's not an entertainment. There's no entertainment value. <laughs> no, absolutely. So, so I think that the public, I think it's different. That I think venomous keepers get a bad rap because it's automatically assumed that they do so. They keep these animals because of ego or, or you know, for in in the wrong reasons. But in reality, I think the the majority of venomous keepers that are doing breeding and doing really important work. And, you know, they're the ones that are the most quiet on social media. You don't hear from them. You know, right. what you see is the negative and, you know, it's, it's really difficult because I didn't start out in a traditional way. Like, like I explained at the beginning. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, people should be, I guess, you know, running around yelling danger, 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 you know, overreacting that they're going to be bitten and all of this kind of stuff. A good venomous keeper is a person who's worked with these animals for several decades and has never had a bite. Yeah, that's a good venomous keeper. Um, anyone else? You screwed up somehow. Yeah, like you said, it's always your fault, not the snakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. No. You know, there was a, a really great, this is a story I don't tell very often, but it's, it's, there was a, a young man in a state close to us who was bitten by a monocle cobra and he was a very good keeper. However, he did one thing that wasn't smart, which was he, that particular day worked with that animal with nothing on his feet. So he didn't have shoes on or anything. He was barefoot. Right. Um, and he was keeping his animals, even though he was an exceptional keeper. Uh, you know, the animals were so well cared for, everything like that. He was keeping them in a room that was too small. And um, he went to feed one of his snakes. And that snake came out of the cage charging in a, in a feeding response and bit him on the foot. Um, and, you know, 
there's someone who had their heart in the right place, um, was taking exceptional care of their animals, but underestimated that animal, and that's what happened. So it's it's difficult, um, and we have to kind of police ourselves. But we live in this age where, you know, close calls with a venomous snake on TikTok and um on TikTok and Instagram and everything, that's what gets you views. Gets you the views, so yeah. That's what people do. And one of these days, and I'm very adamant about this, one of these days, one of those YouTubers is going to get a serious envenomation, and it's going to be very, very bad. It's going to be very, very bad. And not just for them, but for the hobby in general, because now everybody's mm-hmm. looking, looking at us the wrong way and frowning on us and... This is why you shouldn't be keeping these animals when in reality, again, it wasn't the snake's fault, but the keepers. Exactly. Exactly. No, I agree. That's that's very interesting. So in short, yes, I believe people should be able to have these animals, <laughs> and I, I believe they should be able to work with them. But the problem is it's up to the individual to be prepared and to make the right decisions. And as people, a lot of times we don't do the right thing. Um, and we, we don't, you know, attitudes can shift, you know, your, your whole, you know, uh, philosophy of keeping these animals can change very quickly from, you know, being a safe and steady worker around these animals to all of a sudden you start getting views and it starts giving you an ego and then you make mistakes. Um, so it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. No, you're right. If only there was a way to stupid proof this hobby, that would be great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do have two more questions for you, if that's okay. Of course. Yeah, of course. Awesome. So you just mentioned breeding. Do you do any of your own breeding um, in mtoxins? We do not. And the reason for that is baby snakes are a lot of work. <laughs> and, um, and it doesn't matter what type of baby snake it is. They're just a lot of work. And so the way we look at it is a normal animal to ethically collect venom, it does vary by genera and species, but to be ethical, usually you want them to be around three years old. And one of the things that, and that's not like a rule that's out there or anything like that. It's just, that's when the snake is mature enough to be able to withstand the stress of venom extraction. And, um, you know, it's... (sighs) it's just so much darn work and we have so much to do already. So we partner with uh, a great group in Florida um, called the Reptile Preservation Institute um, that's ran by um, uh, a couple, uh, Cody and Pia Bartolini, and they uh, are exceptional venomous breeders. Um, Well, they're exceptional at everything they do with crocodilians, et cetera. But, they breed our mambas for us, um, our gaboons, our puff adders, um, a lot of the snakes that we need for the anti-venom production come from them. And, you know, they're considered private keepers, um, even though I, I think they're at a higher level than most zoos. Right. Um, but, uh, so we work with places like that, um, to do our breeding for us. That's awesome. And then, so you said, um, I, I lied, by the way. I just thought of like two more questions. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, so you said you start um, extracting at like around three years old. Is there also like a retirement age kind of, or like I've been extracting from this snake for too long? I think I kind of look at it like 
if we know the age of the snake accurately um, and we see a decrease in venom production or, you know, any kind of lethargy or anything like that, it's, we don't put them through it anymore because the thing you have to think about is, you know, when you're a venom producer, your animals are your lifeblood. And if their care and health is not up to, up to par, the venom isn't up to par. Um, so it's one of those things where um, if I have a question about the quality of the venom and animals producing, um, it's just not used anymore um, because we don't want to risk ruining a batch of production or anything like that. Um, and it's the same thing with a dairy farm. You know, if you don't take care of your cattle, you're not going to get good milk. No, absolutely. Yeah. So same thing. Is there, um, will a snake ever run out of venom? Um, so there's a one venom extractor out of all of us that expresses the venom glands and that will drain down and get about every last drop out of there. Okay. Um, but it'll take the snake longer to to replenish that. And venom takes a lot of resources from the animal to uh, fill up again, let's say, is, is one way to put it. Yeah, to kind of um, restock. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's why we do natural bites. So, like, for example, if I have uh, an Indian cobra give a sample... Um, that same snake could in theory be extracted from the next day and get another amount of venom. You know, the majority of us do it. So the snakes never run out. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. And there's, you know, um, there's a belief that, and I don't necessarily share this belief, but there's a belief that the venom extractor that does express those glands is doing damage to the animal. Um, I don't think that there's proof of that um, scientifically, but um, it's one of those things where if the snake, it's just the way we conduct, the rest of us conduct business. If the snake doesn't want to give us everything it has, we don't force it to. Yeah. It's not stressful on the snake that way. Exactly. That makes sense. Awesome. Okay. And I want to end it on busting a myth if possible. Okay. Um, so one of the most common things you hear about venomous snakes and venomous snakes bite is that as soon as you get a bit, the person should suck out the venom, you know, spit it out and then like cut off the, like cut off the blood circulation to that area. How untrue is this? <laughs> it is so incredibly untrue. So, <laughs> I thought so. Okay. So, so what would you recommend? Well, using a, a venom siphon device, you know, the minute that snake is, is bitten you and it's entered your bloodstream, it's already moving. Right. You know, our, our bloodstreams aren't slow. Um, you know, our circulation is, for the most part, quite quick. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it really does nothing to get any of it out of there. Um, one of the worst things you can do if you're bitten by a viper is to put on a tourniquet. Um, because, uh, or a pressure mobilization bandage, 
basically you're keeping that venom, which is primarily most vipers have a lot of cytotoxicity. Um, so they're going to start to digest the, the tissue and everything. Now you're holding it in one part of the body and you're probably going to lose a good majority of that limb if you do that. However, if you're bitten by something like a mamba or a cobra, um, a lot of them, it's it's the correct protocol to use a pressure immobilization bandage um, to prevent it from spreading. Um, and a lot of times what will happen in remote areas is they'll do that. They'll set a makeshift tourniquet. And when they get to the hospital, you know, the majority of that packet of venom, let's say, is stored in that limb the minute that tourniquet is taken off, uh, a lot of times patients will, boom, just like crash uh, because now it's circulating through everywhere. So it's like building up and building up and building up and building up. And then finally it's just, boom, it's released all over. Um, But that buys you time. So, um, so siphon devices are basically useless. And the worst thing you can do if you were bitten by a rattlesnake or, anything any type of viper is to keep that venom in the limb where it is that's a horrible horrible thing it's better to let it spread yes okay awesome and so basically your advice is find the nearest hospital as quick as possible exactly and (laughs) uh and don't worry about taking the snake with you to uh to show the doctor what bit you just go yeah just go Right. No, that's that's makes sense. Now we know they have the uh, polyvalent. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, so, correct. Yeah, yeah yep. no, that absolutely makes sense. Awesome. Well, thank you for busting that myth for me. Absolutely. Hopefully we can slowly get it out of circulation and people will stop believing it. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, yes, perfect. Uh, Nathaniel, thank you very, very much for coming on and for doing this with me. Um, I learned so much today. Um, I hope everybody listening does too. Um, can you tell everybody where they can find you or where they can keep up with mtoxins? Sure. So we have uh, our Facebook, which is just facebook.com slash mtoxinsvenomlab. Um, and you can learn about if you are interested in visiting um, or you want to just see our different animals or ask us a question. That's a great place to do it. Also, um, we do have an Instagram um, at mtoxinsvenomlab. And uh, we try to post on there fairly frequently, but we've been slacking lately. Um, but uh, but that's another place you can reach out to us and uh, get information or help on anything. We're very driven to answer people's questions. So uh, we welcome people to message us. Awesome. And yeah, and I'll have the links to all of that in the show notes as well. Go check them out. Give them a follow. Support what they're doing. Um, Nathaniel, once again, thank you very, very much for coming on. Oh, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. No problem at all. Hopefully we'll get a chance to do this one more time very soon. All right. Awesome. And for everybody else, thank you very much for listening. I'm Daffy's Reptiles on all social media platforms, Daffy's Roundtable for the podcast, and we will see you all on the next one.